Great. Welcome to the SaaS Product Power Breakfast with uh, Thomas Otter and special guest Tim, Tim Geisenheimer. Uh, welcome to the show, everybody. Uh, Dave is in Hawaii this week. I'm not expecting to join, but he may, he may drop in. So, Tim, welcome to, welcome to the show. Thanks, Thomas. Appreciate you uh, having me. Hey, so, so maybe we'll kick it off, Tim, if you could kind of give us a bit of introduction to yourself and, 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 and to, to correlate a very cool company name, by the way. Um, oh, uh, tell, us, tell, tell us all about what you, what you guys do, and um, uh, don't forget the poker. We need, we need to talk about the poker. <laughs> sure. So, yeah, appreciate you having me on, Thomas, and happy to tell you a little bit more about you know, my background and, and what we're doing at Correlated. So um, I've spent my career in uh, sort of go-to-market and commercial roles at, at startups and, and big companies, Spent some time uh, at Twitter uh, via an acquisition of a, a marketing tech company that I was on the founding team of called Tap Commerce. And then over the last few years, I've had a, a few roles uh, as a sort of commercial leader at um, an infrastructure startup called Timescale, where I was the first sales hire, and then a company called uh, Facet, uh, which is a BI analytics company. And over the course of my kind of career, especially more recently, I, you know, I started to see this, this new go-to-market motion um, called PLG or, or bottoms up growth um, really start to take off. And uh, I realized as a sort of sales leader and commercial leader that, um, you know, I wasn't really able enabled to be successful um, because I was kind of had a lack of understanding of what my customers were doing with the product. And um, that was super important for this new go to market motion because everyone that was using our product started out using it for free um, instead of in a sort of more traditional uh, sales context, and, and we can dive into a lot more detail on why that matters. And so, uh, last year started uh, correlated to basically be this bridge between sort of product data and insights and, and sales teams um, to help them be more successful um, in this new sort of PLG and, and bottoms up uh, go to market motion. So, yeah, that's my uh, my backstory. The poker reference, Thomas. Uh, I guess I have to say that I, I almost dropped out of college uh, to be a professional poker player, but luckily for my parents, uh, I didn't do that um, and uh, went into the the wide world of tech uh, instead. Okay, so so this is this is advice for everybody: don't play poker with Tim unless he's uh, <laughs> unless he's uh, unless he's on your unless he's on your side. Cool, cool. So. Perhaps where we can start is, you know, I'm an enterprise, you know, I've, I've worked in enterprise product management all my life and, and, and uh, you know, in, in the enterprise world, you know, traditionally, um, you know, you work with big customers, you got, you know, direct feedback from, from uh, big customers, but you weren't, you know, totally focused on, on, on the analytics of the user. Um, you know, over the last few years, we've seen that, you know, um, grow dramatically and you know more and more tools are available now for product managers to understand you know how customers are you know how customers are using the product um, at the same time though we've seen kind of a uh, an explosion of sophistication in, in the in the b2b uh, b2c uh, side of things and and also in tools you know, aiming at, for instance, at SME that involve um, uh, sometimes uh, uh, free products or trial products and so on so so there's been a real explosion of, of information for for uh, product managers um, to understand to understand their their their, their um, uh, customers better, and this is kind of the the genesis, if you like, as I understand it, of 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 uh, PLG. But perhaps you can give us sort of your definition of what what um, you know product level product uh, product led growth is, and 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 why you think it's so um, so important. 
Yeah, I, I think you kind of gave a, a great intro, and I'll, I'll piggyback on on that. So, you know, I think the big shift is the sort of traditional enterprise go-to-market motion sort of look like um, a linear path for the most part. You would have, um, you know, someone go to your website, perhaps have buying intent, uh, you know, maybe fill out a form and say, hey, I'd like to learn a little bit more about this product and I want to talk to sales and and then, uh, you know, based on whether or not they were a good prospect, uh, maybe an SDR would talk to them and qualify them. And uh, eventually they'd get to, you know, uh, a salesperson who would potentially, you know, show them the product and, and then schedule some sort of pilot or POC um, or just, you know, go through a sales process. And then after, you know, spending, you know, maybe six figures, they would uh, and several months of work in legal and security and diligence, uh, you know, you, you get access to the product and get onboarded and start to use it. And so that that's the traditional sort of enterprise software model. Um, and I think what, you know, PLG represents is a complete inversion of that, where um, instead of having to go through that process for a lot of the most modern um, and successful B2B products today, you can just start as an end user um, using that product in, in you know five minutes or less, you just you know sign in and you get you get access to it, and that that's typified by tools like Slack or or Zoom, um, or if you're, you're looking at developer tools, things like Datadog or, or MongoDB, and so these are now some of the most uh, successful and and uh, highest enterprise value um, software companies in in the world, um, and, and in large part due to this. Uh, complete flip of uh, of offering the software for free in a self service way to end users, and so if I were to boil it down, that's like the real change is instead of having this kind of um, longer, you know, sort of more full of friction process to get access to a product, the um, the, the world of product led growth and that model has, has allowed you know people to just start using products immediately uh, with with zero friction. Yeah, the, the first time I, I, I really. Uh, came across this in depth was was uh, a little while ago. I, I, I sometimes do due diligence work for um, uh, for growth equity and PE and so on. And 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 there was uh, uh, one of the PE firms that I work with here in Europe was was uh, making a, a a investment into a, a recruitment uh, software company that targeted SME. And you know when I did the due diligence, you know I looked at the product and I was pretty impressed. I thought the product was solid and 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 and. And, um, you know, did the job that the, the market required, and that was great. But what really impressed me was the level of sophistication that they had on the, you know, on the customer and the customer onboarding side of things. And, and you know, they were able to really understand, you know, exactly which customers were, were, were using the product. And, and when I went on board to, to test the product, I, you know, I, I set up a user in the free version and, you know, played around with it with a few hours play around with it for a few hours and then you know i stopped at the process where it where i didn't want to impact the whole product you know uh, and um you know a few hours later i got a message from them and then the next day i actually got a call from a you know from a, a an sre as to you know hey you know do you have any problems with the system you know can we help you and you know i was really you know i was amazed at the at the insight and then the 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 when i did the, then did the due diligence project the ceo i said look ex- you know show me you know, show me how that process works. And he took me through, um, you know, you could say, here's the pipeline of customers using the product and and I can tell you which ones are likely to churn, um, you know, which ones are likely to, 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 you know, which are our best customers and so on from the data. And, you know, having come from, you know, the biggest ERP vendors in the world, you know, I was amazed to see the level of 
sophistication that this relatively small uh, software company had in terms of its of its customer customer information. So it was a great example of I think for me of how how a lot of innovation in in tech today is not happening at the at the enterprise. It's it's happening elsewhere, and, and, and these techniques are now sort of filtering up towards the enterprise rather than you know traditionally it's often been the other way around. Yeah, and and I would say you know that example you just gave is, is something that we're seeing you know more and more, and, and and definitely you know a reason why we we started correlated. And I think one of the important things you mentioned there that kind of jumped out at me is the the level of sort of granularity and and, and uh, complexity uh, in terms of data capture that the CEO was able to kind of walk you through. And I think you know even a few years ago it was a lot harder to get access to you know, that data around what your customers were doing in your product and then to, to, to sort of get it in a shape and a format that was sort of easily digestible. And there are now tools like, um, you know, Segment, uh, which was recently acquired by Twilio. There are uh, data warehouses like Snowflake and uh, BigQuery, which just make it really easy to sort of take all of your data and start to um, put it together in the useful ways. And so, you know, even just a few years ago, those things, you know, didn't exist. You needed to ha- kind of have this, massive data engineering team or, you know, an analytics team that was, you know, using more bespoke software like Hadoop or something to, uh, to, to uh, get, get value from it. And, um, you know, that's not the case anymore. Um, and so I think that's unlocking a ton of uh, ability for companies to be, you know, more nimble, to use data to make decisions and to, uh, um, and then to use, you know, ultimately products like ours. Right. One of the points I think that, that enables it is that, that, Products themselves, as you're building a, you know, as a SaaS product, as you start to build SaaS products today, you you, you typically today you're thinking about an a, an API first or a at least a, a, an architectural approach that that makes um, good APIs part of your you know part of your definition of done, um, you know, and this is an example that maybe when you were building the product you didn't think about, you know, you didn't think about a major requirement would be. You know, being able to you know extract log files so that so that we could do sales analysis. But you know, if you've if you've done a good job of you building your APIs in the first place, then these sort of new and adjacent use cases are, are easily are easily enabled. So I would expect for you know some of the older products, it would be harder to plug some of these kind of tools into them. Um, you know, because they they simply they weren't thought of with it with an API with an API-centric um, uh, design principle. Am, am I right there? Uh, absolutely. And I, I think that, um, uh, you know, that that is something that we see a ton of. I mean, there are entire sort of categories that are built on top of uh, APIs. And I think, I mean, se- Segment's a great example. The reason why they're able to have, you know, the coverage they have of, I think, around 400 or 500 different SaaS tools and, and, and different type of product connections um, is due to those tools, respectively, offering you know well documented and, and sort of clean APIs to uh, to be able to plug into. And so, um, you know, I think it, it is something that in the past, you know, even five years ago, um, companies might have been a bit more um, held their cards a bit more close to the vest, to use a poker analogy. <laughs> Maybe you don't want to offer easy access for you know different uh, integrations and different companies to. Um, partner with you because you feel like that might um, sort of impinge on your um, competitiveness or secret sauce or whatever it might be. But I think now you're you're totally right where actually integrations and having some breadth of uh, connected connectivity to other tools and other products is table stakes and um, everyone needs to do it. And 
you know, as a result that that's allowing, um, you know, allowing a lot of these enterprise applications or, or SaaS applications to, you know, work really nicely together. Right. And I, I, I'm guessing here that you, you, you work, um, you're having to work both with the, with the end application itself. So let's imagine from, I don't know, let's, let's take an example of the world. I know it's a recruitment, yeah, it's a, uh, it's a recruitment um, uh, application and you're aiming at SME and you have a, you have a freemium, you kind of have a freemium version. You'll need to integrate both with the, with the application itself that the, that the uh, vendor is selling and also with the supporting tools like the CRM systems and, 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 other, and other sales support tools, right? So, you know, integration is a big, big part of what you do, right? Yeah. So at a high level, basically what we do and, and how we help sales teams is, you know, for that example you gave, we would plug into um, that recruitment tools um, source of product data. So whether they're using a tool like segment to collect product data around, around what their customers and their users are doing in their product or, or whether or not they're just collecting it and putting it in uh, a tool like Snowflake, uh, data warehouse like Snowflake or BigQuery, we can plug it into those sources and then combine it with what they're um, doing in uh, their customer data in a tool like Salesforce to provide a sort of unified view of their customers and users. Um, and then from there, we're able to give sales teams access to um, uh, integrations with things like Slack or with email send platforms like Outreach or SalesLoft so they can kick off um, uh, email campaigns that are really hyper-targeted to what the users of that product are doing. Um, and the goal is basically to say, hey, I want to talk to specific users or specific accounts um, that are ready for upsell, ready for expansion, ready for cross-sell, um, basically that, that look ready to spend more money. Um, so that's one right. big one. Or if they have this kind of more freemium model, like a Slack or Zoom, where you can just start using the product for free immediately, give the sort of sales teams, especially the SDR or BDR team, um, a way to understand which of those free users are, are the ones that are ready to convert um, initially. So those are kind of of the two big use cases that, that we have and, and some of the integrations that you know we we uh we leverage to, to enable them right so maybe i'll you know as we tend to focus a lot on the show about about product management how you know when you when you were building the product itself when you're starting off you know how did you go about you know how do you go about thinking about your own you know mvp and and you know what did you look for in 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 you know building your own product team uh, how did you go about? How did you go about doing that? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a great, you know, sort of startup um, building question that, that is maybe generally applicable. So, so we took an approach that, you know, I I'd, I'd like to believe at least is um, could apply to any company, probably in B two B, maybe not B two C. And so, you know, what we did prior to committing any any lines of code basically was talk to uh, you know over a hundred prospective customers and sales leaders and salespeople and uh, folks on the customer success side and marketing side, uh, um, a lot of the companies that we felt could be our, you know, our customers. And so, um, you know, we did a lot of that legwork to understand kind of where the pain, you know, was and um, what are some of the problems they had and, and how did they, you know, feel like, you know, there was a missing piece, like what did that look like for them? Um, and we, you know, took a lot of that, you know, that customer development work that we did and then translated that into um, the early MVP. And then we, you know, started to work with a lot of our early customers in, in a private beta format and got, you know, a ton of great feedback, you know, live from them as we were building. Um, and, and they're still obviously getting a ton of feedback today from our customers. And so, 
you know, I think that general approach of, you know, before you put a single line of code down, talk to prospective customers and say, hey, you know, what are your problems? Would, you know, would you buy this? Uh, we're we're going to solve it this way. Would you buy it? Um, you know, that, that can save you a ton of time and, um, and also can save you a lot of maybe pain of, of building the wrong thing uh, that people don't want to buy. Um, you know, and, and, uh, and obviously in, in startups, and in my view at least, you know, time is your, your, your best friend. It's also a big enemy. You, you only have so much time. So, you know, you got to spend it wisely. Right, right, right. And so, so who was, you know, maybe talk a little bit about, you know, how did you come up with this idea of, 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 the, of your, ideal, your ideal customer? Because, you know, one of the things I find with you know, a lot of startups is, you know, you have a total addressable market, and you you have what I call the imaginary addressable market, which is you know if you had you know if you had everything you wanted and a thousand salespeople and so and so and so that's your addressable market. But that's the imaginary addressable market. But this kind of you know what's your addressable market in the short term? Um, you know the, the reason why I'm big on this at the moment. I've been you know advising a startup who was um, was pitching to Siemens, and you know I told them don't you know go go and win. <laughs> You know, because you will be pitching for the next nine months and they will kill you. You know, even when you sign the deal, you know, you'll end up become a, you'll be end up being a bespoke development shop for Siemens rather than a, you know, rather than a, a, a you know, a software company. And, you know, I advise them, you know, if you want to hit enterprise, well, you know, win 10 companies in the, in the lower enterprise, you know, before you try and win, you know, the, some of the biggest, most complicated, most difficult companies in the world. And so, you know, into your context, you know, maybe, maybe talk a little bit about how you think, think about that, um, that, uh, you know, ideal customer and, and, and how you define that. And, and, you know, do you see that, how you see that evolving? I think that's great general advice. Um, and, and we're, we're certainly following it. Um, you know, we have a few customers today that I would, I would describe as um, larger, you know, multi-billion dollar private companies with, with a thousand employees or so. But, um, you know, we've spent a lot of time focused on, on, you know, earlier on in particular smaller companies. And, and the, the big benefit, as you kind of point out rightly, is you, know, you spend nine months a year chasing down one deal and then they have all these feature requests. And maybe those translate to, you know, signing the next 25, 100, 500 cu- customers, but maybe they don't. And so there is a big, big risk there. Um, I think for us, yeah, we, we've, we've prioritized smaller companies that, you know, are in the um, – I wouldn't say SMB, but, you know, mid-market range um, that have this problem that we think, you know, could, could translate to um, eventually, you know, being uh, applicable to a thousand person or a 10,000 person company over time. Um, right. um, and so um, our, our main sort of uh, focus is on helping sales teams of these companies and our like, you know, one click in, we think every SaaS company could be a buyer of our product, but we focused within the SaaS category, which is quite broad, on kind of this product-led growth um, subset. So companies that have a self-service go-to-market motion uh, for their product, uh, predominantly we, we focused on that. Uh, we have a few exceptions, but but that's been uh, been the primary focus for us. Yeah, I, I, you know, I, I was always, you know, impressed early on with, um, you know, with how Atlassian, you know, I think that they were probably one of the, the the early companies to sort of have this, you know, no sales, you know, no sales mantra. Obviously, as you you know move into enterprise, things things um, uh, you know things change a bit. But it's, it's you know it's fascinating how 
how quickly um, this concept has you know has become you know more and more um, uh, more and more sophisticated. Um, um, I guess in I guess there's a point with with you know with some products where where there is you know everything is self service you know it 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 you know you hold out your credit card uh, you know you pay for it you don't really react with a traditional uh, with a tr- traditional salesperson on the other hand you've got products sometimes at an enterprise level where where the pitch is is uh, you know purely face to face it's the you know your your SAPs and your work days and your oracles and so on of this world and but then there's this this massive world in the middle where you where you are uh, approaching a you're using a, a freemium model you're using some kind of um, um, uh, um, you know uh, use it for a month uh, uh, use it for 10 people and so on and so so you're really hitting that hybrid place between the between the completely automated and the and the traditional uh, uh, sales machine right yeah, I mean, I think the Atlassian comment, and then Slack had an article a few years ago. The same, it was it came out. It was like, hey, we don't have salespeople either, and and it's you know become clear that that's not true. <laughs> where, where uh, you know, Slack prior to, to being acquired and the deal being uh, completed, you know, it was clear looking at their um, you know quarterly numbers that they spent I think close to fifty percent on sales and marketing. Yeah, um, and and same with Atlassian spends uh, a lot on sales and marketing as well, and so. You know, the question is then, you know, they, not not uh, do they have salespeople, but, but what do they do and how do the salespeople kind of work? And I think what, what exists even for, you know, products that have a, a very strong self-service motion is that there is this, this hybrid um, approach because, um, sure, a lot of your customers can be self-service, but anytime there's more of an enterprise-type deal – it's almost impossible for that to be a truly self-service motion. Um, you're going to need sales to come in in some way, shape, or form and say, um, "Oh, well, you have these security requirements, or it's healthcare. You know, you have HIPAA. You, you know, it's financial services. You have, you know, um, X, Y, Z requirements there. Oh, uh, FedRAMP for government. What, what, you know, whatever these different things are, yeah. you're going to need sales to be involved. And um, and, you know, I, I think one canonical example of a self-service product that's making this leap right now, everyone thinks of Calendly as this pure self-service product. Well, they now have enterprise features they're laying out. So as soon as you start to layer on more enterprise-type features, well, all of a sudden you need sales to start to explain to those prospects and, and potential customers of those products, you know, well, what are the benefits here? How is this going to work? And so you, you do need those, those salespeople. And I think the challenge for a lot of these companies is, well, which of our self-service users are even um, a fit, a potential fit for more of this enterprise um, type motion? And, you know, how should sales spend their time? Should they be going after the self-serve folks or should they be doing only outbound or some mix of both? And, and I think, you know, where we come in is, is trying to help uh, cut through some of that noise and, and help sales prioritize where to spend their time. Right. So, so I guess a, a lot of it in this context is as you, as you sort of chip into the enterprise world. Sorry, I keep going back to enterprise, but the, 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 Difference for me about mainly about enterprise is the person using the product and the person buying the product aren't the same thing, right? And you know, that's I, right. I, I guess what you what you get with 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 this is is when you have that meeting with you know, with the buyer, um, you you're armed with with so much information about the user. 
you know, that it puts you in a very strong position to close the deal. You know, because you really know, you know, how the, how the customer is actually using, you know, uh, uh, using the product. And so often in, in traditional enterprise software, you don't actually know. You know, you're not actually on board in terms of what the user is really doing with the product. Yeah, that, that's exactly right. And I think in traditional enterprise, sometimes there is no usage to speak of. <laughs> yeah, you're sort of selling the, the role of sales is to sell the dream of what could, could be, of, of how there could be a tremendous amount of value created by, you know, adopting this product. And, um, and I think the even more cynical view on maybe more traditional enterprise is that a lot of the products that were built in the, you know, enterprise 1.0 wave or whatever, 10, 20 years ago, you know, actually weren't great experiences for end users, um, but they got the job done for the organization. So, you know, the big ERP platforms or CRM platforms, uh, you know, won't name names, but, you know, sometimes they weren't necessarily the best uh, experience for an end user, but certainly, you know, that was what um, sort of a centralized function needed to kind of get the job done. And so I think today the inverse is happening. Slack sales team can go in and say to a, a company, hey, you have 3,000 people using Slack across various teams. Why don't we help, you know, make sure that this is secure, make sure you have access to XYZ features and, you know, sign a, a license uh, that is, uh, you know, that covers you. Um, and so they'll go sell that centrally, but they can use the example of the adoption and, uh, and how, you know, th- there's a tremendous amount of desire within their company to, to use this product as ammunition to sell effectively. Right. And so maybe we spin this around a bit and talk about, you know, one of the things I think that's really important in, in, in SaaS um, is customer success. You know, the, the um, you know, it's a truism that, you know, with, with, with um, you know, traditional software license models, you know, you have this perpetual license, so there's a the big effort to sell it up front. You know, and then once a person's you know, once a person's bought that up front, the you know, the the, the, the maintenance revenue is is super, you know, is supremely profitable. But essentially, you know, you have that customer, you know, you have that customer for life until you really screw up. You know, that's a traditional enterprise you know, enterprise approach. With with you know, with SaaS we saw we saw a shift to this to this to this, um, uh, to you know, either an annual or or um, or you know, three yearly license. But you know, you really you really made your money in SaaS, you know, on the renewal, you know, on the renewal arrangement rather than on the initial, you know, rather than the initial deal. And the promise of SaaS was was you know, um, you lease the product, you know, and then the it's it's really the 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 next contract where your where your um, uh, where the contract becomes you know becomes uh, um, you know profit, profitable for the vendor. So the the role of you know customer success in SaaS, at least theoretically, has become you know is, is much more um, uh, critical uh, commercially than it was in in, in um, you know in traditional uh, in traditional software. So I'm guessing you know in, in your model the the you know, it's not just about the upfront sell, but it's also about it's also about the the you know further down the line about the renewal. I think that's become sort of everything in SaaS. You're absolutely right, um, and so you know, in, in traditional software, as you really say, you know, 15, 20 years ago, ten years ago, even, you know, you would you would try and sell that you know upfront deal, and and that was like the most important kind of motion. But today. It is land and expand, and I think the product-led growth go-to-market motion has, has you know, put that on steroids. Um, and so, you know, you, you see that, you know, as a focus for customer success, and 
I think where kind of we have maybe a bit of a <clears throat> alternative view is that actually sales is even more important in some cases than customer success in driving um, sort of that expand motion because expand is actually it's not sort of preventing churn or trying to you know um, you know retain expand means actually you're spending on a cohort level much more money on a monthly or annualized basis per customer. And that's what the best companies, the data dogs, the slacks, the zooms are seeing. They're seeing this number that the critical metric net dollar retention be above a hundred percent. And right. you can't be above a hundred percent if it's just a, you know, Oh, that customer renewed. It's above a hundred percent because they're spending more and more. And so <clears throat> that's the key thing that we're seeing and where we think, you know, sales has, you know, a, a bigger part than maybe people recognize um, as a result. Right, so the contracting, this is kind of interesting because I hadn't really thought about this way, but the, you know, if you think about it, again, even in, you know, even in it's called in SAS 1.0, then, you know, you would have, you know, a three-year, a three-year SAS contract and then, you know, at, you know, at sort of two years into this, you'd start to say, okay, how, you know, these guys are going to renew, what new product do we have to sell them? You know, how can we upsell them at renewal? You know, so renewal was the point of upsell, right? Yep. Um, so it would be this this process of renewing. Oh, and by the way, we've got you know we've got this new product that you know um, uh, we'd love to include include in your you know in your contract, and then you know expand and so on. And you know what you're seeing, what I think you're hinting at, Tim, is that that now what the sales process is, it's more continuous. So um, you know, customers using you know using feature A. Um, you you realize that you know from that usage of of feature a actually there should be you know there's an opportunity to tell, to sell them feature b you don't wait until you know you don't wait until the renewal moment to do the to to do the um to the upsell you you engage at the at the point of need of that customer for that feature precisely and i think the sort of the customers that we're working with and the the best companies here are you know thinking about expansion, you know, day one, basically, of a customer starting to use the product. And and they've actually instructed their sales teams to, you know, fight for expansion um, across whatever the kind of pricing dimensions are, whether it's a seat-based expansion or product-based expansion or usage-based expansion, um, to name kind of three of the more, more common ones. Uh, you know, they're, they're fighting for that, you know, immediately. And, um, and a lot of where, you know, our product at least comes in to help on the expansion side is arming sales with, you know, the signals and insights around how their customers are using the product uh, to say, hey, well, actually, this customer is ready to expand earlier than that renewal date, earlier than that renewal date, because they've started to use this new feature that's, that's gated or, you know, that's, that, that you can, you know, unlock, um, or they have, you know, they started to expand their seats usage, and you can, you know, see that they're about to hit their cap and, you can go back in three months in or whatever and say, you know, instead of, you know, only having 100 seats, it's clear you're, you're using most of them. Why don't we give you another 100? Um, and so we, we are arming them with that data so that they can actually make those decisions and decide which, uh, which customers to go after um, and, and try and do that expansion much faster than the annual renewal. Right, right. So there's been a shift away from this, you know, the, 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 yeah, the beauty of SaaS, at least in in the early days, was the idea that you would have this predictable revenue. You know, you could you would kind of know that okay, they sign the deal now, and they're very you know ninety five percent of our customers renew, and so therefore you have this this sense of you know ongoing you know ongoing predictability, and the, you know the finance folks you know the finance folks really you know really like that that model, and you know I think 
I think that's changed, um, uh, and we're now into the approach where it's 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 much much more more about about creating a framework where you can drive um, you can you can drive growth you know outside you know outside that renewal um, outside the contract <laughs> revenue. Yeah, it's no longer good enough. <laughs> it's, uh, you know, yeah, now we need to do more. It needs to be more than predictable. It needs to be better better than that. Yeah, <laughs> so be, I think that's the new. Be, yeah, the new yeah, yeah. I just have to do the thing of saying just to keep keep our friends at Clubhouse happy that this session is being recorded in front of a live studio audience, and and we've been chatting away here. But are there any questions from the um, uh, from our from our loyal uh, listeners? Uh, Azur has one. Great, Azur. I'm gonna I'm gonna uh, let you up onto the uh, uh, onto the stage. Cool. And Azur, hi. What's your question? I think you can be able to ask the question. Yep, you should be. You should be up there. Have I done this right? I have done this right. So you should be, and so you should be able to say something if we can hear you. What am I doing wrong here? Never mind. I'm not sure what's going on there. I can't. I can't hear you. I don't know whether your microphone's um, not working or whatever. But you should. We should be able to hear, you, but we can't. Um, Tim, where was I? Um, jumping back into the kind of flow of questions we we, we had, um, we picked up a little bit about this relationship between sales and custom service. But do you, do you do you want to jump back into that for me for a second? Sure, happy to. Yeah, I mean, I think so. Customer success is obviously still critically important, and um, you know, maybe more important than ever. And, and I think um, you know the, the role that we see in a lot of the, the companies that we're working with and talking to for customer success is you know, becoming, you know, even, you know, greater than it was in, in the first sort of generation of, of SaaS. Um, and, and I think, you know, the, the big role there, though, um, is mainly for, uh, like you said, sort of support and service and understanding kind of how to make customers happy with the, the product. And I think there's, um, you know, a couple of shifts that we're seeing that are, are pretty interesting. Um, one, the nature of sort of this product-led growth trend has meant that companies now have, instead of, you know, traditionally a SaaS company might have a couple hundred customers, maybe a thousand customers, a couple thousand customers, you know, would be a lot of customers. They now have ten, tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands, in some cases millions of, of customers. And so, you know, you can't have a customer success team that can cover effectively all of those accounts or, or customers. And so there's um, a, a need to understand, you know, which ones to focus on, which ones get personalized attention and have some stratification as far as like, I'm going to have enterprise coverage or, you know, some level of mid market. And then there's always going to be a long tail in these companies. And how do we treat that long tail? What, what is the effective sort of processes and teams we need to have in place uh, um, there? And so, you know, we see that as a scaling challenge um, and, and sort of a process challenge that a lot of SaaS companies are going through these days, which is pretty fascinating. And you know, let's let's explore the, how the relationship in in product lead growth changes between between product management and 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 and, and sales, or, or does it does it uh, does it change? Product management and sales is is interesting. I mean, I think you know traditionally product managers would, would look to sales as, as being, you know, the, the sort of closest to uh, the customer in, you know, maybe before they signed context and, and understand, okay, what are the feature requests? What are we 
Um, you know, what what are what are we missing here that we need? Why are we kind of losing uh, losing deals or, or whatever it might be? And I, I do think that's still important. I think that today, though, product managers are you know much more data driven than they were previously. Um, and they're using tools like Amplitude or Mixpanel to really understand um, in B2B, um, you know, what are different cohorts of users doing? What are some of the features that we need to build or, or areas where the product isn't, you know, as, uh, as efficient or good as it could be? Um, and so I think sales still has an important, you know, role to play. Um, but there's, there's a lot more sort of data-driven processes that are put in place for, for PMs uh, today. And I think on the sort of converse, and, and this is where we're kind of coming in, sales can actually benefit a lot from some of the data-driven practices that PMs are, are starting to do. And, and we really believe that that product analytics data can be put in the hands of sales to actually take action off of and use for their own cross-sell, upsell, or, or expansion efforts, or, or even conversion uh, from a self-service free user to paid. Um, and so... I think there's this melding of the roles to, to, to some degree, or a little bit, or at least melding of uh, of uh, the the use of data across PMs and, and sales that you know hadn't really traditionally existed before that, that we think now exists. Cool. So I've got one question. Sorry, I have a I have a pet um, I have a pet I have a weird hobby which is GDPR. Um, um, it is kind of a weird hobby, isn't it? Um, so, you know, one of the questions I have from a kind of from a from a um, you know, one of some of the challenges I've seen in enterprise is that um, uh, enterprises are, are sometimes uh, not happy with with vendor tools that uh, intrude into their users, right? Um, and you know, I'm thinking back to my days and that you know big ERP vendor. You know, we had a lot of pushback about you know trying to do you know trying to engage directly in the product with the cust- with the with the user. You know, there was very much a pushback from IT, but you know, hey, we don't we don't really want you uh, um, uh, knowing uh, too much about the user in terms of what they're doing in the transactions, in terms of the and there was sort of almost a sort of security privacy requirement from from the enterprises that that we wouldn't know too much about the user. Are, are you seeing that or has that kind of gone away now? Is or, 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 you know, the, the end customers of the, of the, um, you know, of your customers, are they, have they kind of given up on the idea of, 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 of that, that level of control? You know, I think um, certainly we still see it to some extent. Um, I do think the sort of trend is in the direction of, Hey, you know, it's okay to, you know, in a responsible way, use this data. And, you know, I think one of the big enablers, at least, um, that, that we've seen is SOC 2 compliance. So, you know, being audited um, by, you know, an independent auditor to look at, you know, your practices from a security and policy standpoint to make sure you're taking, you know, data security very seriously, um, you know, is something that I think, you know, makes everyone sleep a little bit better at night right. and makes it, you know, makes it clear that, um, you know, you might be doing something with customer data or, or involved in sort of the customer operations in some way, um, but that, you know, because you're sort of taking this so seriously that, that you know, it's uh, everyone's kind of covered off on. And so we just actually uh, recently got our SOC 2 Type 2 compliance, uh, which is kind of the highest level of, of SOC yeah. 2. And so, you know, this is something that we, we care about a lot. Yeah, my other hobby is Sarbanes-Oxley, so, yeah, I'm really, I'm, oh, great, I'm great. kind of sad. <laughs> 
fun hobbies. Huh? <laughs> so, <laughs> so yeah, we, um, yeah, we, we take it seriously. And I, I think, you know, the trend even before we, we existed as a company, you, you look at companies like intercom or, um, there, there are a few others, uh, Pendo comes to mind. You know, they've, they've built great businesses, put in kind of what you described, uh, you know, little bots or chatbots or little, uh, onboarding, um, you know, guides into products, into SaaS products and, and triggered off of different customer actions. And I, I do think that there's a, a more willingness today than a few years ago to do those sorts of things. Yeah. I mean, the, the growth of things like WalkMe has been, you know, been really, really, has right. been really, yeah, um, uh, yeah, really impressive. Yeah. Um, um, I was going to have a whole bunch of questions in my head, and now they've gone out. But let's go. Let me go back to the ones that we had that we had um, uh, originally. Let, let's talk about you know how how in product led growth the relationship I think changes between you know um, uh, marketing and uh, you know marketing and sales. How does you know how does you know in this new world how does sort of lead gen they must just put that totally on its head and talk, it's talk a me through a bit about that. Yeah, fascinating topic, and if Breezy wants to raise her hand and, and chime in on this as a, a marketing um, uh, practitioner and leader, uh, I'd love to hear from her. But, you know, I think what we're seeing is that there's this <clears throat> trend towards kind of the tip of the spear for pipeline, like the marketing side, growth marketing side, and then the SDR or BDR side that, that's typically doing, you know, out, outbound or, or even inbound qualification. You know, those those sort of practices are starting to come together a bit. Um, and, you know, I think traditionally the SDR role was like put in sales, but now we're seeing it often, you know, put more in the marketing side to drive drive demand, uh, which is fascinating. And I think in um, the product-led growth um, sort of, you know, subset of SaaS, what you see is, is these companies, especially the leaders, they're getting 10,000 leads a day, 100,000 leads a day in some wow. cases, um, which is, you know, for anyone that's been in SaaS or enterprise software, you know, you get, you know, a handful of leads a day is a good day. So, you know, to, to imagine getting 10,000 a day is, is, is kind of mind boggling. And, um, and so the role then of marketing is almost, you know, okay, we don't want to generate demand because it's, or, or we're doing a great job of it. Now it's like, okay, well, which of this, these people who are starting to use the product that are coming in or, or to our website and signing up, you know, which are the ones that, that actually are going to convert? Um, and how do we, you know, how, how do we decide, you know, how to get them in through the funnel um, and into the right place, whether it's sales or in self-service or, um, you know, what, what is the right motion there? And I think that that's how marketing is, is changing in this new world is, is becoming really good at, at doing that. And then, um, you know, our point of view is that the sort of uh, alignment between sales and marketing in this new world is more complex than ever. And, um, you know, it, it needs, you know, help. Uh, and then we, we think we can help at least provide ways to do routing and, and, uh, and, and make those two kind of worlds, you know, um, coexist more easily. But it's a, definitely a new set of challenges um, and uh, fascinating. will be fascinating to see how it develops marketing and sales kind of alignment develops over the next few years. All right. So, I mean, this implies to me that, you know, the, the role of, you know, I suppose uh, let's call it sales ops for want of a better um, uh, better description becomes you know really really critical. So you know who's who's you know how are you thinking about territories and 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 how are you thinking about you know distributing you know distributing these leads and so on becomes becomes really much more complicated and and much more critical. 
Yeah, I think this is, you know, you're hitting on another trend that, that we're, you know, we, we see every day, which is kind of the rise of RevOps, which, you know, is kind of taking uh, the marketing upside, the sales upside, the CS ops side, and kind of rolling it into a single role or, or single kind of uh, capacity in companies and, you know, to in an effort to, I think, um, you know, break down some of these barriers and, and foster alignment. And so, um, you know, it is it is critical uh, to have, you know, a clean set of tools all speaking to each other in, you know, a um, uh, sort of operationally um, efficient way uh, to have your data be kind of set up and 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 uh, and, and clean. Um, and then, yeah, to uh, to kind of foster um, uh, an efficient set of processes. It's, it's tough. Um, and so we work uh, with a lot of our customers are talking to a lot of folks on the RevOps side. They're, they're like sort of a key user of our product. And, um, and uh, it's a, uh, a fast evolving world that they operate in. I mean, I guess that's in, in part your buying center, right? It's, 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 you know, that it's in the larger companies anyway, it's going to be that, that person who's, who's actually responsible for that, uh, you know, for the Salesforce tooling. And the tooling yeah. that the, yeah. the people in sales use. It's becoming a, you know, one of the things that's kind of interesting is, well, I've been thinking about a bit is, is the evolution of the line of business buyer, you know, and, um, um, you know, that the, there are all these, um, you know, these people with a, 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 getting a bit irritated, I've done with this term ops, but you sort of see it everywhere. You know, you see sales ops and dev ops and security ops. And, you know, I heard, Somebody though they they said they weren't in HR anymore. They're in people ops, you know. And we're seeing all these these ops functions, but I think they're becoming they're becoming quite sophisticated buying centers in their own, you know, in their own right. And that's that's I think that's changing the way a little bit across enterprise software. How you know how people are selling? It's not just you know the the CIO anymore, and um, you know trying to catch the attention of a you know distracted sales leader. It's it's there are people now. You know, in those functions that are you know well aware of the of the tooling opportunities and 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 have um, you know have significant um, you know have significant spend budget. Yeah, yeah, we're definitely seeing that, and I, I would say you know we work closely with that team, and and they're you know helping to make the decision you know to to buy us and, and many other things, and then you know also you know working across you know sales leadership and and, and the marketing um, side to. To kind of get this, uh, to, to get our product in, but but many other products too. I, I think you know we're seeing a, a huge trend is that they're you know RevOps you know has a huge say, but but then you know every team you know these tools kind of touch lots of different teams in many cases. So it, it's uh, it's definitely cross functional in terms of getting buy in to uh, to adopt these things. You you can't have silos anymore. Uh, it's not just going to be buying you know, a tool for marketing that doesn't touch anything else or a tool for sales that's kind of just over here. Those things often are, are touching, um, you know, the internal systems and, and all the different teams are going to have to, you know, be impacted by that. So, I, you know, I'm jumping around a bit here, but there's the, the question that, I've, that I'd forgotten that I came back to and remembered. So, um, and it's about my friend SOC2, you know. Um, I, one of the questions I get um, often is at what point you know, in your life cycle as a, you know, as an emerging early stage SaaS company, should you, you know, should you hit, hit on the, you know, hit on the SOC 2, you know, the, the SOC 2 type um, um, certification, you know, in your case, you've done SOC 2 type 2. So which is the more, 
which is a more rigorous of the two of the two TOC assessments. Um, you know, other things that people often do is ISO twenty seven, the ISO twenty seven series. Um, you know, European startups tend to do the, the the ISO series, and you know, American startups tend to do the to do the the, the SOC two. But you know, yeah, if I get it right, you guys, you know, only recently launched product, right? Yeah, and yet we you did. did you did SOC two, you know, you did you know, and and that you know that wasn't ch- changed to do to do the sure. SOC two the SOC two audit. Um, so I'm super fascinated about what. What drove you to do to do that so early in your in your? I really like it, by the way. But what, why did you do it so early in in your you know in your your, your product life? Was normally I sort of see it, you know, vendors coming around at kind of oh we got a whole bunch of customers now and they're pressurizing us to do SOC two. Do you really want to do it? And and like they kind of do it. Okay, we're going to wait till we got Series A, or we're going to wait till we got you know big money before we or until you know, Siemens really shits on our heads to do it, you know, and, and, and yet you've, you've kind of done it in a, in kind of a, a preemptive, in a, in a preemptive way. I, I really like that. I'm, I'm curious about the decision-making that, that, you know, the decision why you did that of all the other things you could spend your, your early, you know, friends and family or, or early seed money, why you, um, you know, why you gave it to KPMG or whoever to do the SOC 2 audit. <laughs> We didn't. We didn't use KPMG. I'm sure they would have been out of our budget. But yeah, there there are a couple of factors that, that went in our decision making, and and um, you know we definitely, as you point out, kind of did it ridiculously early in the uh, the company's kind of lifetime. Um, but I think there was there's a sort of some some compelling reasons why. I mean, the first and, and most important one is to kind of make our product work and and to really kind of you know do the magic that we're doing we have to be plugged into our customers' customer data. So we are actually accessing customer data of our customers and, and sort of touching that um, to, to be, you know, effective in, in our, you know, job right. uh, as a product. So, even, so though, even though you're selling to to companies that are not um, Sarbanes-Oxley, you know, typically your average startup is not worried about Sarbanes-Oxley for their own uh, accounting practices, but many of those, many of your customers are, you know, sub-processes for, you know, larger customers. So startup A that you're, that you're working with may actually have a whole bunch of customer data that is from our friends, uh, you know, is Bank of America. And so Bank of America put an obligation onto the customers that you're selling to that, you know, any, any application that's touching their data needs to be SOC 2, needs to be SOC 2 certified. That, that's one. Um, and I think just more simply, the fact that we are, you know, plugging in directly to customer data, have access to, you know, some level of, of PII in a lot of cases, um, you know, just meant that we had to structure our systems and build our product in such a way as to be very rigorous. And, right. you know, we were doing a lot of the things that you needed to do to be SOC 2 type 2 compliant without having the certification. And so, and, and we were doing that from you know day zero, basically as we're building the product. And so we realized, you know, early on, hey, we're we're doing a lot of these things. We have these processes in place. We have these policies in place. Like we're, you know, architecting the, uh, you know, the, the infrastructure of our product to be extremely, you know, locked down and thoughtful here. So you know, those things that require maybe a lot of work if you haven't done them yet, post Series A, or you're trying to get pressured by customers, like oh, we have to like do all these things now. Uh, we were already doing them, so that that was one thing uh, that was important for us, and, um, and and we felt like we were kind of checking the boxes there. I think um, the other thing is there's actually been a lot of innovation in in SOC too. So there's this uh, a couple of companies uh, that the vendor we're using is actually Vanta, and they're fantastic. They allow you to kind of 
do SOC 2 compliance and the, the monitoring that auditors require, you know, require in a pretty automated fashion. Um, and so, you know, obviously you have to pay the auditor, you have to pay them. Um, and, and that's not, you know, insignificant of money, but um, they make the sort of process very straightforward and, and simple in, in a way where the past, and, and you probably know this a lot better than I do, Thomas, you know, it was a bit more involved. There was, there was a lot of guesswork. You, the auditor was like not even allowed to tell you what to do. <laughs> so you had to like, yeah. you know, hire a consultant that would come and be like, okay, well, this is what you have to do, KPMG or whoever else. And then, you know, pay them a ton and, and then, you know, cross your fingers and hope that it was done correctly. And so, you know, I think Vance has really done a great job and some other companies out there that like Secure Frame and a few others, um, you know, make it really easy to, to do this. Um, and so I think those two factors uh, were really important to us uh, deciding to do it early on. Right. So there's a, yeah, I've been looking at a bit about this, but there's kind of a market of, of, of tooling that lowers the cost of doing the, you know, doing your, your socks, your, uh, uh, socks audit provides you with a lot of templating and a lot of, um, uh, you know, predefined analytics and so on that give you the reports and so on that the, that the, uh, you know, that the auditor needs. So what was happening in the past is that the auditors would, you know, people would come in and they would give you a bunch of spreadsheets if you were lucky. And, um, you know, essentially you'd have a whole lot of manual processes to, to get ready for the audit. Um, and now that the, 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 these vendors are coming in with, with, with good tooling that links into your, you know, links into your uh, security systems and so on to give them the, give the auditors the, uh, you know, the, the, the data far more cheaply, uh, accurately, and simply than was in the past. It's, it's really quite, quite a nice, you know, nice innovation to the lower the cost of, 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 of SOX compliance. So I guess it becomes, you know, more viable for early stage, um, early stage software companies, which is kind of a, which I think is kind of a good thing. Yeah. Totally agree. And, and um, you know, I, I think if it weren't for those products, we, we may have, we may have deferred it to the series A or, or a little bit later, but um, I think the combination of us, you know, touching customer data and then the ease with which we were able to um, sort of make sure we were compliant um, using these tools, you know, I, I think that was a winning combination for us. Cool, cool. So, Tim, we, we're almost at the, you, we're almost at the at the top of the, um, you know, the top of the hour. I think I think I may I may turn it back to to poker advice for us. You know, <laughs> what what is your you know, for, for people that, that, that can sort of half play poker, what's your what's your number one tip other than don't play? What's your number one tip for people? <laughs> you know, I think um, poker is fascinating. Uh, I, I would I would recommend everyone play actually because I think it's a great game. I think if you want to start doing it seriously, one of the biggest lessons is is actually not related to the game itself and getting getting good at it. Um, to do that, you just have to spend a lot of time doing it. Um, I think the biggest lesson is if you really want to play, you have to actually practice what's called bankroll management, which means don't gamble or, or play with more money than you can kind of afford to lose. Um, there's actually a ton of poker history that you can read if you start to get interested in the game about some of the most skilled and talented players in, in the world, you know, got ahead of themselves and started playing, you know, for higher stakes than they could afford and went you know, went broke. And so sad, sad stories, of course. Um, but uh, that, that's one of the games within the game of poker where you really have to get good at sort of managing your bankroll and not spending too much. So anyway, I would recommend anyone who's interested in playing poker. So, and, and, and when you do it, when you do it, you know, I know you did a lot of online stuff, but, but, you know, when you do it live, does all that thing about looking for, you know, looking for people's ticks and stuff, is that actually real or is that just, just in the movies? 
I guess I gave you a boring recommendation. The the tells stuff is is real. Uh, I think though that the tells are, are overblown. Uh, definitely more interesting for the movies. Uh, you have to get really you know good at some of the basics before tells become part of it. And the biggest tells in poker are actually just based on what's called reading the board. So looking at the cards, looking at at the action, how how people are betting, and you can actually tell a lot more about what you know, someone might have or, or what's going on by just looking at sort of how they've been betting and, and, uh, and the cards on the table. So uh, that, that, that's the sort of get good at that first, and then you can kind of look if someone uh, is touching <laughs> their face or whatever. Uh, so that, that would be my recommendation. Well, Tim, 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 um, it's been super having you on the show. It's, 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 you know, I was a bit worried that, that you know, without my, um, Without my uh, partner in crime, Dave, we would have been um, we would have been a, a bit lost in things to say. But I think we could have probably carried on for another hour. So, you know, I'm, I'm very impressed with what you guys are doing. And 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 so, you know, um, uh, so one last question: Where did you get the name correlated from? Where did that come from? Because you know, it's it's like such a cool name. Where did you, you know, you're like a secret stats major or something, or did you just? <laughs> Well, yeah, not a secret stats major, although back to poker, you know, my, my hard knocks learning of stats, there is a ton of, of probability in, in poker and, and oh, doing yeah. sort of that on the fly. So anyway, that, that's my, my uh, PhD in stats is coming from that. But um, correlated, you know, we, we, the, the product itself, we try and help, you know, sales teams understand based on sort of this, this product usage data, you know, which accounts are, are most likely to, you know, be... Uh, ready to upsell or convert, and so you know correlation just is kind of comes naturally there uh, between you know whatever the things that are most likely to correlate to upsell or expansion. And so the more we started thinking about what the product does and the value we provide, the more we realized that that correlated was a sort of natural uh, name, and 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 we were fortunate enough to make the right call to to name the company that. Oh, that's a cool name. Well done. You know, and great. You know, lots of luck with the with the with the company. I'm, 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 you know, really, really enjoyed our chat today, and I hope we talk again. We hope we talk again soon. But thanks very much for for being on the show, Tim. And I'll ping you a little bit later for a for a for a catch up. All right. Awesome. Thanks, thanks a lot for coming on the show. Thank you everybody for listening. Right. Thanks a lot.